One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast, where we produce and develop the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I am your host, Derek Baker. And today, we're taking it back to a classic on the N64 that I think, in my opinion, really was one of the best film adaptations to game at the time and really has held that stature for a long time, being one of the greatest games that kind of came out of the N64 era. Um, and of course, today we're going to be talking about GoldenEye 007. GoldenEye was that game that whenever you went to your friend's house, it was like, okay, we got to pop GoldenEye in. When you're going through the mm-hmm. list of N64 titles, what am I going to play? What kind of party game? You know, there were other options, but nothing had really been quite like GoldenEye. I mean, from no. a multiplayer shooting perspective obviously paved the way for the modern FPS and the modern multiplayer, which I, th- I guess has changed a little bit now with uh, more online play and things like that. But sure. GoldenEye, super influential, and I think that when you hear people talk about the evolution of this genre, it always comes back to this. It does. It kind of started that era of screen peeking and kind of like trying to be like, no, 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 look at your own thing. We're going to play this four-player kind of, action-packed shooter um, that just came up with a bunch of crazy modes, some amazing level designs, and even the single player itself is super memorable and follows along with the story of the movie um, in, in such an integral way that the gameplay really, really shined, even though it being, you know, a motion picture IP adapted to a gaming platform. Now, when you go and you look at this game now, Mm-hmm. It's so crazy to see how far things have come because you look at the faces on some of these sprites. I don't, I don't know. They're blocky. They're weird looking. Kind of looks like Pierce Brosnan. Kind of doesn't. So it's really like an interesting time capsule uh, to go back and I think look at. And I can't go back and play this game anymore. I don't know about you. They've tried to re-release this and remaster this a few times now. And it's not able to quite capture that nostalgia magic. Mm -hmm. But like you said, a lot of fun, a great film adaptation. Let's hop into it. Absolutely. So GoldenEye 007 is a 1997 first-person shooter developed by Rare and published by Nintendo for the N64. Based on the 1995 James Bond film GoldenEye, it features a single-player campaign in which the player controls secret intelligence service agent James Bond through a series of levels to prevent a criminal syndicate 
from using a satellite weapon against London to cause a global financial meltdown. The game includes a multiplayer mode in which up to four players can compete in several deathmatch scenarios via split screen. Development began in 1995 and was handled by an inexperienced team led by Martin Hollis, who had previously worked as a programmer on the coin-op version of Killer Instinct. It was primarily inspired by Sega's Virtua Cop before being redesigned as a free-roaming shooter. After two and a half years of development, GoldenEye 007 was released shortly before the release of the GoldenEye sequel, Tomorrow Never Dies. Although the game faced low expectations from the gaming media, it sold more than 8 million copies, making it the third best-selling Nintendo 64 game. The game received critical acclaim, with praise given to its visuals, gameplay depth and variety, and multiplayer mode. In 1998, it received the BAFTA Interactive Entertainment Games Award and four awards from the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences. Retrospectively, GoldenEye 007 is considered an important game in the history of first-person shooters for demonstrating the viability of game consoles as platforms for the genre, and for signaling a transition from the then-standard Doom-like approach to a more realistic style. It pioneered features such as atmospheric single-player missions, stealth elements, and a console multiplayer deathmatch mode. The game is frequently cited as one of the greatest video games of all time, with many of its gameplay elements, such as the clob gun, having left an enduring impression in video game culture. A spiritual successor, Perfect Dark, was released in 2000, and a reimagining of the game, also titled GoldenEye 007, was released in 2010. So yeah, as we said, just a super iconic piece of gaming history here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the golden gun, as soon as you're playing the multiplayer and the golden gun pops out, you know you're in trouble. Oh, yes. So let's talk about the studio. And of course, we've talked about Rare in the past. But Rare evolved from the company Ultimate Play the Game, which was founded in Ashby de la Zouch, Leicestershire, by former arcade game developers Tim and Chris Stampert. After multiple critically and commercially successful releases, including Jetpack, Attic Attack, Saberwolf, and Nightlore, Ultimate Play the Game was one of the biggest UK-based video game development companies. The ZX Spectrum home computer, the platform the company usually developed games for, was only popular in the UK, and they believed that working on that platform would not be beneficial to the company's growth, as they considered it a dead end. Meanwhile, the company inspected an imported console from Japan, the Famicom, and believed that it would be an ideal future platform of choice for the company as it was more sophisticated than the Spectrum. It had a worldwide market, and its cartridges had no load times. As a result, Rare was established in 1985. Its main goal was to reverse engineer the console and investigate the codes for Famicom's games to learn more about the console's programming. With successful results, the company decided to sell the Ultimate brand to U.S. Gold and cease game development for the ZX Spectrum in the following year. The Famicom's manufacturer, Nintendo, claimed that it was impossible to reverse-engineer the console. Using the information the Ultimate Play the Game team acquired from Rare, the team prepared several tech demos and showed them to the Nintendo executive, Minoru Arakawa in Kyoto. Impressed with their efforts, Nintendo decided to grant the Ultimate Play the Game team an unlimited budget for them to work on games for the Famicom platform. After they returned to England, they moved from Ashby de la Zouch 
to Twycross and established a new studio through Rare. They set their headquarters in a manor farmhouse. Rare also set up another company known as Rare Incorporated in Miami, Florida, headed by Joel Hochberg. The American company was involved in maintaining Rare's operation in the U.S. and contacting major U.S. publishers. Hochberg was previously the vice president of American arcade manufacturer Centuri. The Famicom was eventually released in North America and Europe under the name Nintendo Entertainment System, or the NES. With the unlimited budget, Rare could work a large variety of different games. The first project Rare worked on was Slalom, a downhill skiing game. The company then worked with various gaming publishers that included Trade West, Acclaim Entertainment, Electronic Arts, Sega, Mindscape, and Game Tech to produce over 60 games for the NES and several additional Game Boy conversions. They helped in creating new and original IPs, including RC Pro-Am, a racing game with vehicular combat elements, and Snake Rattle and Roll, an action platform game with Tim Stamper developing the game's graphics. Rare also developed Battletoads, a beat-em-up inspired by the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise. The game became known for its extreme difficulty, and upon seeing success, publisher Trade West published multiple ports for the game and tasked Rare to develop sequels. Trade West also gave their own Double Dragon license to Rare, allowing them to develop a crossover game between the two franchises. Rare released three Battletoad games in 1993, including Battletoads and Double Dragon, The Ultimate Team, Battletoads in Ragnarok's World, and Battletoads in Battle Maniacs. The last Battletoads game from that era was released for the arcade in 1994. Several Battletoad games were also ported to some Sega systems, like the Mega Drive and Genesis. When the Super Nintendo Entertainment System was conceived, Rare was not yet ready for the change. Rare limited their releases to some Battletoad games and decided to invest their significant NES profit in purchasing expensive silicon graphics workstations to make three-dimensional models. This move made Rare the most technologically advanced developer in the UK and situated them high in the international market. Their priority also changed at the time, as the team decided to focus on quality instead of quantity. You know, the story of Battletoads is interesting to me because it's inspired by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which was inspired by the Daredevil comics. So mm -hmm. it's like an inspiration to an inspiration to like a parody to a parody and crazy that it was a huge success for them, that it, it would dive that deep and borrow and borrow and still continue to be popular. Yeah, absolutely. Rare using the SGI systems created a boxing game demo and presented it to Nintendo. As the SNES at the time could not render all of the SGI graphics at once, Rare used the SGI graphics to produce 3D models and graphics before pre-rendering these graphics onto the cartridge of the SNES system a process known as advanced computer modeling. Their progress with the 3D graphics on the SGI systems impressed Nintendo, and in 1994, Nintendo bought a 25% stake in the company that gradually increased to 49%, making Rare a second-party developer for Nintendo. During this period, Rare started selling their games under the trademark name Rareware. The company was considered one of Nintendo's key developers, and had enough recognition that Nintendo offered Rare the Nintendo catalog of characters to create a 3D CGI game. The Stampers asked for Donkey Kong, and the resulting game was Donkey Kong Country, 
which was developed by a total of 20 people and enjoyed an 18-month development cycle. Rare staff also visited Twycross Zoo, observing and videotaping real gorillas. The game was a critical success, with critics praising the game's highly advanced visuals and art style. Donkey Kong Country sold over 9 million copies worldwide, making it the third best-selling game in the SNES library. The game received several Game of the Year honors and was followed by two sequels, Donkey Kong Country 2, Diddy Kong's Quest, and Donkey Kong Country 3, Dixie Kong's Double Trouble, as well as several handheld spin-offs such as the Donkey Kong Land series. Rare then developed Blast Core for the Nintendo 64. The game sold 1 million copies, which was considered disappointing by Rare. At the time, Rare was split into several teams working on different projects. A large-scale platformer was said to be released afterwards, but was delayed. As a result, Rare changed their schedule and released their smaller projects first. The first project was GoldenEye 007, a game based on the James Bond film GoldenEye. The project was led by Martin Hollis, and development was conducted by an inexperienced team. Inspired by Sega's Virtua Cop, GoldenEye 007 had originally been an on-rail shooter before the team decided to expand the gameplay and turn it into a free-roaming first-person shooter. New elements such as stealth, headshot mechanics, and reloading were introduced. A split-screen multiplayer was added to the game by the end of its development. GoldenEye 007 was the first console first-person shooter developed by Rare, and it was released two years after the release of the film. The game received critical praise and received numerous awards. GoldenEye 007 remained one of the best-selling games for two years and sold more than 8 million units worldwide. So again, Rare has done a lot, and you see, like, for them, if they stay kind of ahead of the curve as they had done, you know, buying these really expensive workstations, getting into 3D before there was even like an element in gaming, you know, getting this aspect of it allowed them to produce and create so much content for Nintendo that, you know, has honestly stood the test of time for a lot of games, looking at like Banjo-Kazooie, you know, looking at like Diddy Kong Racing, like all these different games that really created a lot of gameplay mechanics that continued on to future titles in some way or another, whether they produced it, Nintendo produced it, or another third party, um, that's really continued on. Yeah, absolutely. I think Rare, this is really their golden era. Mm-hmm. Rare did so many great things with Nintendo, and it's kind of unfortunate to see where some of those characters ended up, obviously um, ending up on the Microsoft consoles and not really having the same impact as they did in their heyday because the Donkey Kong games were great, obviously um, still exist today in that same vein. Mm-hmm. But then there were these other ones, like the Diddy Kong Racing, as you mentioned. Uh, Banjo-Kazooie is another great one. To really not have those games exist in the same capacity as they did back then bums me out a lot. It does. It, it really does. Um, but, fortunately, we do have this era of gaming. And I want to talk more about the development of the game and go into more of that really inexperienced team, that virtual cop kind of take on it, and why and where did it go? So as we said, GoldenEye 007 was developed by the British studio Rare and directed by Martin Hollis, who had previously worked as a second programmer on the coin-op version of Killer Instinct. In November 1994, after Nintendo and Rare discussed the possibility of developing a game based on the upcoming James Bond film GoldenEye, Hollis told Tim Stamper, 
Rare's managing director, that he was interested in the project. Due to the success of Rare's 1994 game Donkey Kong Country, GoldenEye 007 was originally suggested as a 2D platformer for the SNES. However, Hollis proposed a 3D shooting game for the upcoming N64 console. He created a document with design ideas, including gadgets, weapons, characters, story digression from the film, artificial intelligence that would react to the player, and just much more that kind of was in this like first kind of like holy design Bible. Although Sega's 1994 light gun shooter Virtual Cop was cited as the game's primary influence, id Software's seminal 1993 first-person shooter Doom and the N64 launch game Super Mario 64 were also credited. Features such as gun reloading, position-dependent hit-reaction animations, penalties for killing innocent characters, and the aiming system that is activated with the R button of the N64 controller were adopted from Virtual Cop. The developers considered having players reload weapons by unplugging and reinserting the rumble pack on the controller, but Nintendo opposed the idea, as would, I think, everyone in the world. Those things did not connect very well, so... <laughs> oh, no. could you imagine, like, you had the shotgun out, and every shot, like, you did, you'd have to, like, take the pack out and put it in? Yeah, oh, no, man. thank you. It's definitely a, a fun idea, a fun concept. I would have been not opposed to that as, like, an optional thing, if you wanted to do that. kind of would have been cool, but I see a lot of the connection ports being broken oh, from it, using that. Like you said, especially the rumble pack, which for those of you who don't know N64 rumble packs, it would like insert the top back of the controller. So having to like rip that out while you're like in a fight and then rip it back in. Like if they made a custom like light controller, very much the light gun of like the, the NES, you could have something like that. But unfortunately, or fortunately, we didn't get it. Yeah. Um, and then to wrap that up, the concept of several varied objectives within each mission was inspired by the multiple tasks in each stage of Super Mario 64. So taking that idea of reusing an area with unlocking some certain things based on what you do, making that repetitive idea fresh, definitely a good idea to borrow. Yeah, that's, that's a good clarification, because I thought for sure it was the gunplay in Super Mario 64. Uh, no, that didn't come uh, until later when we, we saw true <laughs> Mario colors come out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. The team visited the studios of the GoldenEye film several times to collect photographs and blueprints of the sets. Eon Productions and MGM, the companies that control the James Bond films, granted the team a broad license, 
and many levels were extended or modified to allow the player to participate in sequences not seen in the film. Although the reference material was used for authenticity, the team was not afraid to add to it to help the game design. John Woo films such as Hard Boiled influenced the visual effects and kinetic moments. Details such as bullet marks on walls, cartridge cases being ejected from guns, and objects exploding were part of the design. Hollis wanted players to receive a lot of feedback from the environment when they shot. The team considered implementing both on-rails and free-roaming modes because they did not know how the N64 controller would work, and the game's gas plant location was modeled with a predetermined path in mind. A modified Sega Saturn controller was used for some early playtesting. The designer's initial priority was purely on the creation of interesting spaces. Level design and balance considerations such as the placement of start and exit points, characters and objectives, did not begin until this process was complete. According to Hollis, this unplanned approach gave many levels a realistic and non-linear feel, with several rooms having no direct relevance to a level. And that's true, mm-hmm. um, but as a young video gamer, I definitely found myself very lost <laughs> very frequently with this approach. I think at times, and then whenever they did The World Is Not Enough, the, I guess, sequel, or I guess the next James Bond game that they did, um, they definitely took some of those elements and added more of that into it, where there were rooms. You'd go into like a broom closet, let's say, for example, or, or like a random bathroom that didn't have a lineation to where you're going but it made the environment feel real, I guess is the best way to put yes. it. it. It didn't feel like it was all staged to make you go down this rail system. It kind of allowed you to go ahead and almost run your own track for it. Yeah, and that makes sense, right? It does help with that realistic feeling because there are certain video games where you're going through, you're in a hallway or something, and there's just a bunch of doors all over the place. And it's like, you could probably open these doors, but for whatever reason, they don't want you to go in there, obviously because they didn't design anything to be in there. Mm-hmm. But it it sort of takes you out of the realistic aspect of that because it's like, if I really wanted to go in here, I could probably kick this door in, right? Yeah. So them taking that approach of, yeah, there are a lot of rooms that you can't open doors and they don't mean anything helps create that environment for sure. Absolutely. Now, when it came to production... Work on GoldenEye 007 began in January 1995 with a team hired by Hollis, programmer Mark Edmonds, background artist Carl Hilton, and character artist B. Jones. Edmonds focused on creating a game engine that could render 3D graphics from art packages into Nintendo 64 data structures. Hilton modeled levels based on the film material, while Jones constructed characters based on photos and costumes they had. Since the final N64 specifications and development kits were not initially available to Rare, the team had to estimate the finalized console's capabilities using an SGI Onyx workstation and Nintendo's custom NinGen development software. In the following months, designer Duncan Botwood joined the team to construct the levels. The first year was spent producing art assets and developing the engine, which originally only allowed the player and enemies to move around a virtual environment. After the first year of development, Rare added more staff to the project. The first edition was designer David Doak, who helped with the level designs and worked on the game's AI scripting. 
He explained how the game's stealth elements were implemented with, quote, whenever you fired a gun, it had a radius test and alerted the non-player characters within that radius. If you fired the same gun again within a certain amount of time, it did a larger radius test. And I think that there was even a third radius test after that. It meant if you found one guy and shot him in the head and then didn't fire again, the timer would reset. Windows throughout the game were programmed so that enemies cannot see through them while the player can. Though unrealistic, this was an intentional feature made to encourage the player to use Windows to spy on enemies. And that's a good approach, I think, because a lot of AI that's sort of in that middle ground from this to the more realistic things, the enemies can see you through the walls. And that could be sort of a frustrating gameplay element as well, because you're doing your best to stay hidden. But it's hard in the first person shooter genres because you can't see your body and like what's poking out, what's not. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when all the enemies just converge on you at once, um, it could be really hard to defend yourself and, and really participate in stealth activities. Instead, it sort of becomes a run and gun. Well, and especially for these early games where like you're starting to figure out what AI is, especially for FPS console things like what does that entail? How do these work? And do we want to make this more of an arcade fun game or more of this very serious game that is honestly not going to be fun? And I'm glad that they went with the first approach. And it makes sense for James Bond, you know, super spy type of game anyway, where it is a little bit more about that stealth element. Exactly. A second programmer, Steve Ellis, was hired by Hollis six months later. Although Ellis assisted the development team in many areas and programmed the cheat options, he was mostly responsible for implementing the game's multiplayer mode, which was added to the game roughly six months before it was released. According to Doak, Ellie sat in a room with all the code written for a single-player game and turned Goldeneye into a multiplayer game. The team spent numerous late evenings playtesting it. The multiplayer levels are based on single-player missions, and some of them do not support four players because they were initially not designed to handle multiplayer action. A firing range was modeled as an environment but was not added to the game. Because the team assumed they could use anything from the James Bond universe, the multiplayer mode features characters that appear in previous Bond films. Actors who portrayed Bond in previous films were playable during development, but were ultimately removed because Rare was unable to get Sean Connery's permission to use his likeness. Despite their fictional names, most weapons were modeled after real-world firearms such as the Walther PPK, the AK-47, and the FNP-90. The club was inspired by the Scorpion, a Czechoslovak submachine gun with a folding stock. Its name was chosen to honor Ken Lobb, who was Rare's Nintendo side producer and contact at the time. Another weapon, the DD-44 Destave, was named after Doke's initials. Adrian Smith, the game's third and last artist, who had already worked on some games at Rare, was in charge of producing visual effects such as muzzle flashes and explosions. He mentioned the 1995 film Heat as an influence. The final Nintendo 64 hardware could render polygons faster than the SGI Onyx workstation the development team had been using. This helped the developers significantly, as some backgrounds rendered at two frames per second on the Onyx, without even drawing enemies, objects, or Bond's gun. However, the game's textures had to be cut down by half. 
Hilton explained one method of improving the game's performance. Quote, a lot of GoldenEye is in black and white. RGB, or red-green-blue color, textures cost a lot more in terms of processing power. You could do double the resolution if you use grayscale, so a lot was done like that. If I needed a bit of color, I'd add it in the vertex. When Super Mario 64 was released in 1996, the 3D collision detection system of the game was very influential for Hollis because GoldenEye 007 was originally using a 2D method. The music was primarily composed by Graham Norgate and Grant Kirkhope. Norgate previously penned the music of Blastcore, while Kirkhope composed the music of Donkey Kong Land 2. Robin Beanlin, the game's third composer, only wrote the elevator music that can be heard in certain levels. Although the sound effects were created by Norgate, and a lot of effect was put into combining and permeating sound in different ways to give the game a satisfying feel. According to Hollis, whenever the player shoots a gun, up to nine different sound effects will randomly trigger. When the game was reviewed by Nintendo shortly before it was released, the company was slightly concerned about the amount of violence and gunplay. As a result, the team toned down the killing and added an end credit sequence that introduces all the non-player characters, giving the game a thematic sense. The game received a teen rating from the ESRB for some pew-pews and some splat-splats, <laughs> as, as is the uh, industry terms for it. I, I do believe that was on the box. Splat-splats and pew-pews. It was. 13 it got, plus. Yeah, it got updated later with some you know, jargon from them lawyers up top, but that was the yeah. true box art. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, GoldenEye 007 was released on a 96 megabit cartridge on August 25th, 1997. Although this was over a year and a half after the release of the film it was based on, the timing allowed the game to benefit from publicity for the upcoming James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. Every cartridge of the game contains a ZX Spectrum emulator with 10 rare developed games. This function was originally made as an experimental side project by Rare and was deactivated in the final build of the game, but has since been unlocked through fan-made patches. The actual development of GoldenEye 007 took more than two and a half years and a total of two million US dollars was spent on the game. You can't trust fans to not unlock those patches oh yeah like if you don't if you don't think games are going to advance in the future i guess you know the internet was brand new and stuff they're like ah, that's not gonna happen <laughs> yeah a little bit of naivety yeah just uh yeah, well if we just deactivate this yeah, they'll fine. never know yeah, it'll be fine but yeah i mean the development cycle in this was very interesting and obviously it's it's so weird to look back at games like this that are insanely influential the only two million but it's like, man, they were gambling with a movie IP to bring to a console, which really had not done well up until this time. There were some outliers, but for the most part, you're not trying to make a huge return on investment. It's more just like, hey, we're marketing together with each other. Let's put something out there. Well, yeah. And then, you know, you had to be worried about parents not wanting to buy this game for their mm -hmm. kids with all the splat splat pew pews exactly. on the box. You read that. Done for. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a gamble taken. But again, Rare had such a great track record up to this point. And for them to be like, yeah, let's make like a Virtua Cop shooter thing that's like on rails, kind of arcade style. Let's also use Super Mario 64 and Doom as an idea. And then let's put this out. And then somehow it picks up this huge following. Again, leading into the world is not enough as a following as well. 
and just again skyrockets rare way up into this golden age and i have to imagine for a lot of players it was sort of an introduction into the james bond world Mm -hmm. as well and so obviously those two things coexisting together i think help each other a lot because you've got the films that come out sure it reminds you of the video games and vice versa so opens up the potential obviously for goldeneye the video game as well as any future James Bond titles like we saw in The World Is Not Enough. Absolutely. So let's talk about the gameplay. We've all played first-person shooters, I'm sure, by this point. Obviously, this podcast based around a very iconic first-person shooter, but GoldenEye 007 is a first-person shooter where the player takes the role of secret intelligence service agent James Bond through a series of levels. In each level, the player must complete a set of objectives while computer-controlled opponents try to hinder the player's progress. Objectives range from recovering items to destroying objects, defeating enemies, or rescuing hostages. Some objectives may also require the player to use high-tech gadgets. For example, in one level, the player must use Bond's electromagnetic watch to acquire a jail cell key. Although the player begins each level with a limited amount of supplies, additional weapons, and ammunition can be acquired from defeated enemies. There are no health recovery items, but body armor can be acquired to provide a secondary health bar. The game features more than 20 weapons, including pistols, submachine guns, assault rifles, a sniper rifle, grenades, and throwing knives. Most weapons have a finite magazine and must be reloaded after a certain number of shots. Although each weapon has its own characteristics, ammunition is interchangeable between weapon types. For example, pistols and submachine guns share the same ammunition. Weapons inflict different levels of damage depending on which body part they hit. Headshots cause the most damage, while arm and leg shots inflict the least damage. The Clob, a submachine gun with a folding stock, possesses a high rate of fire and a wide bullet spread compared to other weapons but is severely underpowered with a heavy recoil. But the club can be dual-wielded for additional firepower. Stealth is often encouraged as frequent gunfire can alert distant guards and alarms can spawn enemies. Certain weapons incorporate a suppressor or telescopic sight to aid the player in killing enemies discreetly. Each level can be played on three difficulty settings, Agent, Secret Agent, and Double O Agent. These affect aspects such as the damage enemies can withstand and inflict, the amount of ammunition available, and the number of objectives that must be completed. Two bonus levels can be unlocked by completing the game on Special Agent and then on Double O Agent. The player may also replay previously completed levels within target times to unlock bonus cheat options such as infinite ammunition or invincibility. Upon completing the game on the three difficulty settings, an additional mode is unlocked, allowing the player to customize the difficulty of a level by manually adjusting enemies' health, reaction times, aiming accuracy, and the damage they inflict. So a lot of replay value there beyond even the multiplayer. Yeah, it kind of is like, hey, you're good enough to unlock the dev kit. Yeah, go ahead and just kind of put whatever settings you want on, whether it's like (laughs) make it crazy easy, make it insanely hard, or kind of in the middle with it. They definitely allowed for a lot that we just don't really see today in those standards of kind of like going through it and bringing that replay to it. Um, as I rhyme on time, uh, it's, <laughs> it just allows for 
much more, especially if you're getting into it. It allows for a lot of cool stuff for like testing speed runs and whatnot if you need to test out some things, like crank that stuff way down to just try some stuff out. It allows for a lot of stuff that I don't think they were prepared or understood at the time. Well, and with the advancements in technology, you know, nowadays you might find speedrunners going back and playing these older games and basically breaking them to mm-hmm. get to different parts of the levels that they couldn't get to before. There was also obviously like the trophy system that's been implemented on console gaming and has, you know, sort of worked its way into in-game challenges as well, where beyond just getting the trophy for your profile, you can actually get like an in-game reward. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of things like that. But back when this game came out, there wasn't really like these set challenges out there for you like that. And so just replaying these games and getting as good as you could. There's another rhyme for you. There you go. (laughs) And just sort of like challenging yourself to be as good at these games as you could. Yeah, I want to get through the hardest difficulty, you know. This was sort of the status that you would get similar to like a 100% trophy completion on a game today. Exactly. Now, I want to talk about the story because as someone who's never seen the film, this is, as Derek brought up earlier, this was my introduction as a kid to James Bond was Goldeneye. And I followed the story. I eventually saw like scenes from the film, not the full film. And I was like, Ooh, yeah, that's that one thing I did. I remember that. (laughs) That's how I compared it. It was like, Oh, that's from the game. Um, so they did follow it pretty decently. So we're going to break down the story pretty quickly. Um, and kind of let you know what you're dealing with. So it's in 1986. In Arkhangelsk, something like that, Soviet Union, MI6 has uncovered a secret chemical weapons facility at the Belamore Dam. James Bond and fellow 00 agent Alec Trevelyan are sent to infiltrate the facility and plant explosive charges. During the mission, Trevelyan is shot by General Arkady Oromov, while Bond escapes by commandeering an aeroplane. Five years later, in 1991, Bond is sent to investigate a satellite control station in Serenaya, Russia, where programmer Boris Grishenko works. Two years after the Severnaya mission. I'm, by the way, I'm going to butcher all these words because I can't say any of these. <laughs> I'm letting you know, audience. <laughs> Bond investigates an unscheduled test firing of a missile in Kyrgyzstan, believed to be a cover for the launch of a satellite known as GoldenEye. This space-based weapon works by firing a concentrated electromagnetic pulse, or EMP, at any Earth target to disable any electro circuit within range. As Bond leaves the silo, he is ambushed by Oromov and a squad of Russian troops. Oromov manages to escape during the encounter. In 1995, Bond visits Monte Carlo to investigate the frigate Lafayette, where he rescues several hostages and plants a tracker bug on the pirate helicopter before it is stolen by the Janus Crime Syndicate. Bond is then sent a second time to Severnaya. But during the mission, he is captured and locked up in the bunker's cell, along with Natalia Simonova, a captive computer programmer unwilling to work with Janus, or Janus. They both escape the complex seconds before it is destroyed, on the orders of Oromov, by the GoldenEye Satellite's EMP. Bond next travels to St. Petersburg, where he arrives with ex-KGB agent 
Valentin Zukovsky to meet the chief of the Yenis organization. This is revealed to be Alec Trevelyan, his execution by Oromov in the Arkhanolokh facility was faked. Uh, by the way, by the way, on paper, if you did not know James Bond, this is some <laughs> eight-year-old writing about some stuff being like, but then in this year they did this, and then in this year they did this. It's, reading this on paper was probably the worst thing I've ever read. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty brutal. And the Bond films... I mean, they're they're meant to be a little campy, oh, of a little goofy. Obviously, iconic. He's the the super spy. He's the ladies' man. He's like this very talented super spy that mm-hmm. men, you know, of of old aspired to be. You know, that sure stuff like that. So it's it's all a little campy and a little goofy. Um, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm gonna wrap this Bond up and for Natalia, us, yeah. Es- yeah, yeah, I'll do this. <laughs> Bond and Natalia escape from Trevely. <laughs> I'm, I'm already with you, brother. <laughs> Bond and Natalia escape from Trevelyan, but are arrested by the Russian police and taken to the military archives for interrogation. Eventually, Bond escapes the interrogation room, rescues Natalia, and communicates with Defense Minister Dmitry Mishkin, who has verified Bond's claim of Oromov's treachery. Natalia is recaptured by General Oromov, and Bond gives chase through the streets of St. Petersburg, eventually reaching an arms depot used by Yanis. There, Bond destroys its weaponry stores and then hitches a ride on Trevelyan's ex-Soviet missile train, where he kills Oromov and rescues Natalia again. However, Alec Trevelyan and his ally, Xenia Onatop, escape to their secret base in Cuba. Natalia accompanies Bond to the Caribbean, surveying the Cuban jungle aerially, their light aircraft is shot down. Unscathed, Bond and Natalia perform a ground search of the area's heavily guarded jungle terrain, but are ambushed by Xenia, who is quickly killed by Bond. Bond sneaks Natalia into the control center to disrupt transmissions to the GoldenEye satellite and force it to burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. He then follows the fleeing Trevelyan, through a series of flooded caverns, eventually arriving at the antenna of the control center's radio telescope. Trevelyan attempts to realign it in a final attempt to restore contact with the GoldenEye, but Bond destroys machinery vital to controlling the antenna and defeats Trevelyan in a gunfight on a platform above the dish. We did it. We made it. (laughs) Through a Bond film game summary. So I, I, I've now learned, I do enjoy on occasion the Bond films. I think I would hate to read the synopsis of each Bond film because it does, it sounds just like a list of things you have to do. I mean, first, man, I got to go to some weird place in the Soviet Union. Then it becomes Russia. I got to go there. Then I'm over here. Then I'm in Cuba. Then I'm over here. And yeah. It's There's great. too many twists, right? It's like, I've saved Natalia. I've lost Natalia. Mm-hmm. I've saved Natalia again. Mm-hmm. Oh, but then this happened. Mm-hmm. Got to go get Natalia one more time. Yeah. You know, and it's just a, it's a lot of, I've achieved this thing. Now I've been countered. I've achieved this thing. I've encountered again. Yep. It's back and forth, like this little tug of war. And um, yeah, you're right. Like on paper, it's a lot like 
a short story that you might write when you're younger in grade yes. school. Which is why it appeals to the masses. <laughs> All right, well, let's, let's, we're done with that. We're, we're going to the thing that ac- people actually played when they played GoldenEye, which is the multiplayer. So GoldenEye 007 features a multiplayer mode where up to four players can compete in several deathmatch scenarios via split screen. These include normal, you only live twice, the living daylights, the man with the golden gun, and license to kill. Normal is a standard mode where players score points by killing opponents. Players can be grouped in teams or compete individually. You Only Live Twice gives players two lives before they're eliminated from the game, resulting in the last surviving player winning the match. In License to Kill, players die from a single hit with any weapon. Due to its high fire rate and wide bullet spread, the club is highly advantageous in this scenario. In The Man with the Golden Gun, a single golden gun which is capable of killing opponents with one shot, is placed in a fixed location in the level. Once the golden gun is picked up, the only way to reacquire it is by killing the player holding it. In the living daylights, a flag is placed in a fixed location in the level, and the player who holds it the longest wins. The flag carrier cannot use weapons, but can collect them to keep opponents from stocking ammunition. Options such as the chosen level, characters to play as, Weapons available and game length can be customized for each scenario. Additional levels and characters can be unlocked as the player progresses through the single-player game. So again, this is really what brought people to what was an afterthought. You know, it's a couple months before release. Let's, I guess, throw a multiplayer in here that becomes this huge hit that really brings people and really, again, shapes the idea of FPS multiplayer games from here on out. Yeah, all this stuff sounds so standard mm-hmm. because we have most of these modes now that capture the flag you know king of the hill style games goldeneye though it brought that stuff into the console realm and it was really fresh at the time and yeah i mean countless hours playing with your friends playing with family of course if you didn't own this game you're at a severe disadvantage because knowing where that golden gun is, you know, knowing where the club is, mm-hmm. whoever was the owner of the game probably had a pretty distinct advantage in the multiplayer. <laughs> um, and, and some of that stuff I think still exists a little bit today, but with it being, you know, multiplayer games, first person shooters being so widely available and mostly being played in random parties online, it's a little bit different than that couch multiplayer style of game yeah it's it's super fun super enjoyed it and it's again i I think i enjoyed more of it when the world is not enough came out gunplay was varied and they added a lot of stuff in there yes i will say uh character wise uh like you said if you if you owned it you were probably playing either odd job jaws some fun character like that and then all the player models were a little different so you had some that were really tiny, some that were bigger, and it was uh, it was fun. It was a fun, fun, fun well, time that was play. the thing, right? Odd job, if I remember correctly, is the player that everyone wanted to pick because he had a different size. Yes, smaller hitbox. And s- yes, yeah, so there was a, a different hitbox, so it gave you a very distinct advantage mm-hmm. to use. Again, probably an advantage of owning the game. Yeah. knowing the the little secrets like that but and this was the era too where like that stuff mattered like now games are so competitive online especially all these like fps's 
everyone wants to be like pretty similar, all kind of equal, like nothing that really stands out. But these goofy days of like playing with your friends and having like these silly aspects of it was like the way to go. It was so much fun to like one argue over this. And I think really, I don't want to say it died out, but it kind of ended in that Halo like one through three era where Mm -hmm. like there were overpowered weapons to get. There were crazy things to do. And I think once we got past like the arena style of gameplay, that of Doom and Unreal Tournament and Halo, then it became like, let's make it as equal as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously this game came out on the N64, but there was also an Xbox Live arcade remaster in development at Rare for several months in 2008. The remaster, which reportedly needed only two more months of development before it was finished, was canceled because Nintendo, MGM, and Microsoft, which acquired Rare in 2002, were unable to come to a licensing agreement. According to Rare's Ross Burry, Mark Edmonds, and Chris Tilston, Rare had opted to start converting the game for Xbox Live Arcade in late 2006, shortly after the Stamper Brothers had left Rare and after the company had completed Perfect Dark Zero and Cameo. Microsoft had suggested that GoldenEye 007 would be an appropriate title for Xbox Live Arcade, leading Rare to start on the remaster prior to getting Nintendo's permission believing it would not have been a problem because GoldenEye 007 was one of the most popular N64 games. Rare had completed the conversion and removed most of the bugs in the final product, having neared a gold version of the game before they learned that Nintendo had not cleared the product, halting development until negotiation on rights could be discussed, which ultimately fell through. In January 2021, a full playthrough of a prototype of the XBLA version was streamed to YouTube showcasing improved graphics running at 60 frames per second. Later, a near-final playable ROM image of the Xbox Live Arcade game was leaked online from an unknown source. Yeah, so we unfortunately didn't get this amazing remaster. We did end up getting two other Golden Eyes, I guess you would say. So we got GoldenEye 007, which was a Wii game. And we yep. know how well those worked. And then we eventually did get GoldenEye 007 Reloaded, which was kind of what they wanted to do for the arcade, but in this kind of updated graphics format of it. I would love to see a remaster of like the OG stuff and not just a new game based on those. It just doesn't, like you said, it doesn't have that same nostalgic feel to it. It feels like we just took what was old, redid it in the modern graphics sense of it, and then unfortunately did not carry the same hype, feel, or want of those OG ones. Yeah, and James Bond as a character, I think, is obviously very iconic. Mm -hmm. And starting to tread a little bit, though, in that, uh, I think, controversial territory where it's like, how interesting is this character really? Like, Daniel Craig uh, obviously wrapped his time as Bond and has since then said in numerous interviews things like, I don't don't understand why anyone would want to be Bond anymore. Like, I'm definitely done with it. Sure. I don't think Bond really needs to be a character anymore. And so it's like, if you were to take that approach in the, the game realm, I think you would really have to give 
James Bond, if you were going to do a Goldeneye again, almost like the God of War treatment, mm-hmm. like really just start from scratch and and take this old IP and this iconic character and just really modernize it in a way that you hadn't done before. And I think that, yeah, yeah you, you, we probably could use more like spy shooter games. I think that they'd be a lot of fun to include those stealth elements. And there's options out there for games like that. They just don't have the James Bond flair, which I think, you know, is like I said, just really iconic. Yeah, I I think like you said, like a reboot of it or or how do you modernize it into being like, hey, here's the next generation's Bond. Like, what does that look like to this new generation coming into it? Like, obviously, times have changed even from way back OG Bond, even till Daniel Craig Bond, um, which if you compare the two, Daniel Craig Bond is like the G rating rating the e for everyone type thing compared to kind of og <laughs> bond stuff um but yeah it, it, it's an interesting take on that and like you said i think that's also a talk within the gaming industry of remasters versus reboots versus yeah. uh like repolishing or kind of being like here's updated graphics here's a full new game or here's a full relaunch of this idea um yeah it would be interesting to see. and i th- I think it's a really great time to explore something like this. I, I don't know what's in the works necessarily, but, you know, they're looking for the next James Bond. I know a lot of the fans of James Bond really want Henry Cavill, mm-hmm. who was apparently the second choice behind Daniel Craig originally, but we'll have to see how all that goes. But it's an interesting time right now for the James Bond franchise. If we were to get some type of, you know, reimagined Bond in the films, I think it'd be a great time to pair that with a reimagined Bond video game. I agree, because here's the thing. No one would see it coming very much. Like, my transition <laughs> to what people thought of 007 Gold, or GoldenEye 007, I should say, uh, in 1997. Uncanny. 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 But yeah, at, at E3 uh, in 97, had a really unsuccessful showing. No one in gaming media really cared. Um, they had a, a terrible booth, basically. <laughs> they had nothing to show really for it, and everyone just thought it was going to be a huge flop. Turned out to be both a critical and commercial success. In 1998, it sold approximately 2.1 million copies. By 2001, it had sold over 7 million copies worldwide. Overall, GoldenEye 007 sold more than 8 million units worldwide, making it the third best-selling Nintendo 64 game behind Super Mario 64 and Mario Kart 64. Let that sink in real quick. Those are, I mean, those are two huge top contenders. But you're talking about Zelda. You're talking about Banjo-Kazooie, another one of Rare's titles. Like, all these other, like, N64 classics you can think of, this beat it. And Super Mario 64 being included with the console. Yeah. You know, that, so that, that's one of the only two ahead of GoldenEye. That's pretty special. It's amazing. And according to a paper published on the website of the Entertainment Software Association or the ESA, the game grossed 250 million US dollars worldwide. Now graphically, in a lot of oh, go 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 go. I was going to say in a lot of ways it feels like this was almost like a viral marketing campaign, you know, where nowadays you get Twitch streamers getting paid to play certain mm-hmm. games. This was almost a word of mouth game where yeah, someone gets it 
you go over to their house, you play it, talk about it at school. Everyone wants this game mm-hmm. all of a sudden. You have to imagine that that's really what made this game successful because when it came out, that's all anybody wanted to play. Yeah. No, it's absolutely what it was. And again, led to the success of just so many other shooters on N64, which pretty much Rare did, uh, but really led to the success of that and causing like such a terrible controller to be used for shooters when the PlayStation already had some two sticks out that yeah. it still succeeded. Uh, now, graphically, GoldenEye 007 was praised for its varied and detailed environments realistic animations, and special effects such as glass transparencies and lingering smoke. Nintendo Power said the frame rate in multiplayer games was high, while Electronic Gaming Monthly described it as somewhat choppy and sluggish. The zoomable sniper rifle was praised as one of the game's most impressive and entertaining features, with Edge describing it as a novel twist, and Jeff Gersman of GameSpot noting its ability to alleviate the game's distant fog. The game's music was praised for its inclusion of the James Bond theme and for adding ambiance to the game. Some levels begin in lifts and feature transitions from elevator music to full soundtrack, which Gershman cited as an illustration of the game's attention to detail. GoldenEye 007 has been credited for proving that it is possible to create a fun first-person shooter experience on a home console in both single-player and multiplayer modes. When the game was released, the first-person shooter genre was primarily for PC games. The game opened the genre to the console market and has been credited for paving the way for the popularity of Halo and Call of Duty. The game's introduction of a multiplayer deathmatch mode on a console is often credited for having revolutionized the genre, with Edge stating that it set the standard for multiplayer console combat until it was surpassed by Halo Combat Evolved in 2001. GoldenEye 007 also introduced stealth elements that were unprecedented in first-person shooters. The game's use of realistic gameplay, which contrasted with the approaches taken by Doom clones, and its context-sensitive hit locations on enemies added a realism that was previously unseen in video games. Although the 1996 Team Fortress computer mod for Quake had previously introduced headshots. Alongside Shiny Entertainment's 1997 third-person shooter MDK, GoldenEye 007 has been credited for pioneering and popularizing the now-standard inclusion of scoped sniper rifles in video games. GoldenEye 007 is frequently cited as one of the greatest video games of all time. Shortly after its release in 1997, Electronic Gaming Monthly ranked GoldenEye 007 the 25th best console video game of all time, calling it easily the best movie game and, more importantly, the best first-person game ever. In 1999, Next Generation editors placed GoldenEye 007 at number 10 on their list of top 50 games of all time, commenting, Marrying Doom-style shooting with trademark Bond missions, GoldenEye is the perfect thinking man's shooter. In 2000, computer and video games readers ranked GoldenEye 007 first place in the magazine's poll, of 100 Greatest Games of All Time, and fifth in a similar poll the following year. In 2001, Game Informer ranked the game 16th on its list of top 100 games of all time. In 2004, retro gamer readers voted GoldenEye 007 as the 33rd greatest retro game, with editors calling it easily the best Bond game to date, and in 2005, IGN editors ranked the game 29th on their list of top 100 games of all time, 
while readers placed it at 7th on a separate list. In a retrospective analysis, Nintendo Life editor Mark Reese gave GoldenEye 007 a rating of 8 out of 10, stating that although the game's multiplayer mode stands up well, its graphics, audio, and fiddly aiming system are dated. He noted that GoldenEye 007's approach to difficulty settings provides considerable replay value, but is a system rarely used in modern first-person shooters. Writing for NME on the game's 20th anniversary, journalist Mark Beaumont highlighted the game's immersive graphics, aesthetic, location-based damage on enemies, and revolutionary multiplayer mode, stating that it, quote, helped to introduce gaming as a group event. In 2011, the game was selected as one of 80 games from the past 40 years to be placed in the Art of Video Games exhibit in the Smithsonian American Art Museum in Washington, D.C. After GoldenEye 007 was released, Rare began development of a spiritual successor, Perfect Dark. Using an upgraded version of the GoldenEye 007 game engine, Perfect Dark was released for the Nintendo 64 in 2000. Although the game features a setting and storyline unrelated to James Bond, it shares many gameplay features, including a similar control scheme, mission objectives that vary with difficulty settings, and cheat options unlockable through quick level completions. While Perfect Dark was still in development, Martin Hollis left Rare to work as a consultant on the development of the GameCube at Nintendo of America. Other members of the GoldenEye 007 team also left the studio to form Free Radical Design. The company developed the Time Splitters series of first-person shooters. These games contain several references to GoldenEye 007, including the design of the Health HUD, the nature of the aiming system, and the Russian dam setting of the opening level of Time Splitters 2. After forming a partnership with MGM in late 1998, Electronic Arts published games based on then recent James Bond films, Tomorrow Never Dies and The World Is Not Enough, as well as entirely original ones, including Agent Under Fire, Night Fire, Everything or Nothing, and GoldenEye Rogue Agent. Although Nintendo considered the possibility of bringing GoldenEye 007, to the Wii's Virtual Console in 2006, the game was never released for the platform due to legal issues involving the numerous license holders with rights to the game and to the James Bond intellectual property. In 2006, the James Bond game license was acquired by Activision. Activision published more games including Quantum of Solace, Bloodstone, and a 2010 reimagining of the N64 game, also titled GoldenEye 007. The reimagining features Daniel Craig as the playable character, contemporary first-person shooter conventions, new level layouts, and online multiplayer. Activision lost the James Bond game license in 2014. In 2010, an independent development team released GoldenEye Source, a multiplayer-only total conversion mod that runs on the Source engine. GoldenEye 007 had initially been intended for inclusion in Rare's 2015 compilation Rare Replay, a behind-the-scenes featurette for the compilation, was produced, but was not released until being leaked in 2019. A fan remake powered by Unreal Engine 4, GoldenEye 25, was in development and originally scheduled for a 2022 release in honor of the game's 25th anniversary, but became an original property after MGM sent a cease-and-desist letter to the developers. So sad times for the ending of GoldenEye, which could have been this update we needed in Unreal 4, but sadly not. 
But on a positive note, it did lead to, as we had said, just so many modern day shooting elements, even influencing Halo, influencing Call of Duty, influencing pretty much anything on the console market and the PC market to a point that really made that huge shift. So as we come to an end to this, as always, Derek, let the people know, why did we choose GoldenEye 007 and what do you think of it? I can't believe we didn't do this game already. Mm -hmm. I mean, an iconic shooter obviously influenced Halo, um, which is a a huge part of our our growing up as well Mm -hmm. as GoldenEye was. You know, we got to kind of live through the evolution of these shooter genres up to what they are today and experience them in real time. And and I think that that's really cool. GoldenEye really was the talk of the town when it came to N64 gaming for a really long time. I mean, you go to school, go to your friend's house after school. Everyone wanted to play this game and get the golden gun. And maybe even if you didn't fully understand the James Bond elements and, and what that was really bringing on top of the gunplay, you were still having a lot of fun just because that gunplay really was so good. And I don't think that the game would have been as successful without that multiplayer yeah. and without that, that conversation happening. And it's crazy that it was really sort of thrown in there as an afterthought. And we see that time and time again as these, these really cool ideas that just, you know, they're there just as sort of the secondary thing that it's like, eh, should we do this? Should we not? Well, let's just throw it in there because we can. We have a little extra time. And it ends up being the thing that makes a game successful. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you just see these really cool ideas get brought into these design developments and um, define the games and, and end up defining even genres. So for me, GoldenEye, a uh, huge source of nostalgia in my retrospective. All shooter games are really hard to go back and play, I think anything earlier than halo sure i can go back and play halo combat evolved and not want to throw up um <laughs> but a lot of these n64 and and earlier titles that's really difficult for me so for me i'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 um for the fact that it defined the fps genre really set the standard but yeah, I can't go back and play this game anymore because I, I will throw up in my mouth. But <laughs> anyway, that's my review. Uh, makes me want to vomit. <laughs> Seven out of ten. <laughs> Seven out of ten. Like a like a good roller coaster ride. Sure, sure. Anyway, sure. what about you? what about you? That's that's why the numerical system doesn't make any sense. Those reviews don't count. Um, but no, <laughs> I I totally understand where you're coming from with like going back to single stick shooters versus modern day two stick shooters, which by the way, for those of you who growing up now with two stick everything, when we had to transition, we were like the dads of gaming being like two sticks now. I'm so used to this one <laughs> stick and just like rapidly like clicking the R button to like aim and do what I got to do. I mean, this is yeah revolutionary. Um, but no, I, I fully agree with that. I think it's one of those, one of those amazing games that in retrospect... And in nostalgia, it hits much harder for us because that was such a huge thing growing up, such a huge aspect of gaming in and of itself. And, you know, looking back for it to be a tie-in to a movie where 
a lot of us have seen some stinkers. I mean, even a lot of those James Bond games that we listed last are, are stinkers. You know, yeah. they, they just didn't hold up the way that this did. And a lot of credit, I'm going to say like 95, 99% of the credit is rare and the amount of kick-ass work that they did to revolutionize gaming, to be ahead of the curve, to push 3D elements on the SNES. I mean, if we look back at Donkey Kong Country and the various of the series, they still look good. They look amazing. They look like they should be on a whole different console versus a lot of the SNES games that are there. And it's thanks to Rare and this, like, you know, early 90s into early 2000s, that 10 years that they really ran this game of games. They did so well. Then they put Cameo out, and that's what happened. Um, <laughs> but during this era, it's, it's amazing. So if I had to give GoldenEye 007 a rating, it would be out of which is out of out of 10. You're going to get us sued, man. That's too similar. <laughs> You're right. That's copyright strike incoming, baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, Research man. for this episode was done by Alex Kendall and Derek Baker. The intro and outro music for this episode was composed, recorded, given to us by our friend Evan Barr and our artwork which is lovely, was given to us by Aaron Shattuck. We want to thank those, obviously all of you who listen, but want to thank those who support us monetarily as well. And those are our patrons. If you want to check out our Patreon, you can check us out at patreon.com slash finish the fight. Got plenty of physical and digital rewards, as well as a Minecraft server and a new D&D campaign coming your way. So now is the time to join. We want to thank those members today with Sky the Bear, Duststorm, Snide T-Bird, that LL Gamer Guy, Nick Hyman, McChief, Climbing Spork, Mr. 1898, Lee Tom John, Keller Kane, and Brian Yost. So thank you all so much for your support. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're also on Discord. It's free to join. Alex and I are hanging out in there all the time talking about James Bond shirt, talking about other first-person shooters, talking about movies, TV, the whole video game industry as a whole, whatever you really want, food, Christmas time. We got it all. We'd love to see you there. (laughs) I love it. Yes. Yes. And you can also check us out over at Twitch. You can see me at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's twitch.tv slash S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. As well as Derek over at twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. Twitch.tv slash thebakerman247. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or most likely your favorite podcast listening platform. If you haven't yet, drop us a review. It helps us out a lot, and we'd love to hear from you. And that has been our coverage of Rare's GoldenEye 007. What are some of your key games that have shaped gaming? It's very similar to how GoldenEye has shaped kind of like the console FPS. What are some recommendations? What are some episodes we should do on them? Please let us know. As always, I am your host, Alex Kendall. And I'm your host, James Bond. And this has been... I'm not James. I'm not James Bond. No, that's a lie. Oh. I'll just be Derek. You've been lying this whole time, I see. Yeah. And this betrayal has been (laughs) Finish the Fight, (laughs) a gaming podcast. See you all soon.
that's a classic Bond twist for you. <laughs> 